Chris Nolan was a teammate of mine, and uh, when he was leaving on his way out, I remember we were, it was the end of a season party or whatever, and he said to Matthew Snyder and I, he said, uh, you guys, you don't understand what it's like elsewhere. It's not the same as here. The the team, the, the uh, focus on winning, not just the players and the management and the coaches, but everybody in the forum, every usher, every doorman, it was about the team and it was about winning and you saw the attitude about it. So um, the leadership and the Molson family and Serge and our president, Ronald Corey, it, it, they just knew how, how, how it was supposed to be. And meritocracy is the, the best word. That was Stanley Cup champion Brent Gilchrist. And you are listening to the Up My Hockey podcast with Jason Padorn. Just watch me now. Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Padolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Padolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a 1,000. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Welcome back to the Up My Hockey podcast with Jason Padolan. I'm your host here, Jason Padolan. And today we're going to be speaking with Brent Gilchrist. Brent Gilchrist uh, is local to the Vernon area where I'm from. Uh, he played his minor hockey here and we'll talk about a little bit of his minor hockey story. Uh, he was a provincial champion himself. We followed in his footsteps 10 years later. And uh, he also played for the Spokane Chiefs, which actually, now that I think about it, we didn't talk about uh, the Spokane Chiefs really at all. And the fact that we both played there and and that we both have our name, as I look on the wall, in this uh, top 25 Chiefs in 25 years, which is kind of cool that we share that. But um, yeah, Brent was a was an accomplished junior player for sure. He was a he was a very very respected NHL player, uh, and played almost 800 games over his career. Went to the finals twice, won it once with Detroit. And was always a guy that gave back. I mean, he, we talk about a little bit the value of being a good person and the value of being a good teammate and, and how that, you know, helped not only Detroit win the cup with his ridiculous amount of resilience and commitment to the team and what he was willing to go through on, from a personal pain perspective uh, to be a part of those games, but also what he was willing to do in the locker room. Uh, as far as being a good teammate and, and putting the team first and how that you know extended his career and also how he put the community first. And, and we talked briefly at the beginning just about uh, his involvement with uh, the BC Children's Hospital and how he had a golf tournament here locally uh, for years and years that he would raise money for the Children's Hospital. I believe he almost raised a million dollars over the course of the um, of the tournament. And, and that's just Brent. I mean, Brent was just a guy who was willing, willing to go to bat for for people he cares about, for the team he cares about, and for uh, for a cause that he cares about. And and it's kind of reflected even in the fact of, you know, his willingness just to jump on the podcast. I was a little bit um, late this week. I've been doing a tons of tons of stuff um, and and just didn't have somebody on, on the docket and, and uh, texted, you know, Brent last night or two days ago and said, hey, can we do something for Thursday or Friday? And he just jumps right in. You know, like it's it's one of those, one of those guys that uh, – that you just—it's really hard not to not to respect him and not to like him, and 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 to hear his his stories uh, here in the next in the next sixty to seventy minutes. I, I think he's he's worth your he's worth your time. He's he's very uh, 
he's a pensive guy. He's uh, he's an even keel guy. But he's a great perspective. He's a great businessman now in his own right, and and uh, and has lots of stories to share from his time not only with the Canadians, uh, but with the with the Wings as well. So, without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Stanley Cup champion Brent Gilchrist. The long-anticipated interview, Gilly. I've been talking about it for a while, but here you are on the Up My Hockey podcast, so welcome. Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate the invite. <laughs> thanks for being here. Uh, I was just looking. I didn't even... You mean, you know how it goes, I guess, with hockey about, I mean, age. I, I knew you were older than me, but I didn't really know how much older. Uh, Gilly and I, for those listening, like, Gilly was uh, was from the... Ver well, not from the Vernon area, but you always came back, and then you had that golf tournament, and... and uh, Brent was, you know, he always had the, I think it was Vernon Hospital, right? Was that what you It was the uh, BC Children's Hospital. BC Children's Hospital, yeah. that's right. So that was that was what uh, Brent was always involved in. And then he got the local hockey players there. And that was where we kind of first started started meeting. And I you mean, you were an established guy at that point. I knew that much. And uh, there was no hockey DB then. So you've always been, you know, a mentor in this area. And, and that's where, where we kind of got to know each other, I guess, a little bit. Um, just to, talk to us about maybe, like, we'll just start maybe right back at the beginning. I, I, I like Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Is that where you played your minor hockey? No, no. So I was born in Moose Jaw. Um, but my parents came out. We actually came out to, for holidays in, in Vernon, and I was, like, three years old. And uh, my my parents came out for two weeks. Now, two weeks in the summer, I think it was August, went home. They put their house up for sale in Moose Jaw. Back, back to U-Haul up and moved out. My dad ran a construction company out here uh, in Vernon. And uh, so I grew up, I went to school and played all my minor hockey in Vernon. And um, yeah, it was a, it, I, I mean, a lot of hockey players come from Moose Jaw, so I guess that was a good start. But um, <laughs> nothing against Moose Jaw, but Vernon was a pretty damn good place to grow up. As you know. Right. Well, so your dad was in construction just like my dad. They must have kind yeah. of, whatever, been in the been in the same marketplace for a while. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, you're, I think your dad built most mostly houses and, and, and uh, I mean, maybe apartments. I'm not too sure, but my dad was more agriculture and industrial buildings. So, gotcha. Um, yeah, probably not exactly in the same loop, but uh, yeah, in the '70s and '80s, uh, building a lot of stuff and in, around around Vernon, not so much in Vernon, but around sort of the farmland, Lumbee and Armstrong, etc. Total sidebar, but. Uh... One of the assistant coaches on my U13 team, well, it's not my U13 team, but where my younger two play, uh, he's just buying his his house uh, off his grandparents. And I guess they're looking at all the paperwork or whatever, and uh, and they said, guess who built it? And it was, like, built in 1976 by my dad and Alan A. Road. I guess they haven't touched it since. He was joking about it, right? Like, it's the exact wow. same. It was built in 76, and it was 46.5, all in, 46.5. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I, 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 yeah, I think my parents' house, which was not far from LNA Road up in the BX, was uh, twenty-seven thousand in nineteen seventy-one. I think seventy-one or seventy-two. So that's where I grew up, and they they had that house up until about uh, fifteen years ago, 10, 15 years ago. So. That is bonkers. I love it. Um, so, oh, so you had you're a Vernon Minor Vernon Minor hockey product, then I guess, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. I played all my hockey, and Jeff Finley and I were defense partners. I think when we were five years old. So I had a really good group to play with in Vernon. We were we won a couple provincials and, or one provincial and uh, won the Winter Carnival tournament. And um, we were we were really good. We had I think four kids drafted off that team. We had Bruce Majors, 
Jay Stark and then and, and Finner and I were both drafted and played. The other two didn't didn't really play a lot um, up, but they they played some in the minors. Yeah, that's fine. That's wild. Again, mm-hmm. that's that's actually so. Yeah, you guys did. What, do you remember what year that was? And it was a Pee Wee Provincial, right? Like that was when you you won the tournament and you won the Pee Wee Provincial Championship that year, right? Yeah, nineteen eighty. Nineteen eighty. Yeah, yeah, we were we were a really good team, and there were some good good teams around Cam, which was always good. Um, Joe Murphy was playing in Vancouver area. Uh, uh, Priestley, Ken Priestley was playing for Seafair. We beat them in the finals. Um, Trevor Hendry and Jeff Sharples, uh, Flaherty, they were playing in Terrace. There were a bunch of good kids playing in the province at the time. Right. Uh, Eddie Christopoli was playing in Trail. Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of high picks. I mean, Joe went first overall, obviously, but he had a late birthday, so he was a year behind us. Right. So you were a defenseman back in Pee Wee? No, that was earlier on. So when I was really young, Jeff and I played defense. I think I moved up to play center when I was like nine or something like that. So right, yeah, right. I just played center. Yeah, because you guys won it in eighty, and then I think in ninety we won it. Like and yeah. then, and the crazy part about that was too, and and you I mean for everyone knowing, and it's, it's no secret. Like to have to have three guys on a peewee team to play NHL hockey games is ridiculous from one town, right? And that was Higgy, like Brad, uh, Matt Higgins, Brad Larson, and myself were on that team, and and Mike Ford went on to be a Michigan State, uh, you know, D one player. He was also on that team. We had a lot of guys go on to play junior. So for what, whatever the reason was, there was just you know a lot of good players in that age group, and we were able to able to win it as well and I mean you won a cup and it's so funny because like to to rank a peewee provincial championship uh anywhere in the mix it seems silly but like for me that's still probably one of the top I don't know five things in my hockey career that I did like it's super memorable yeah. great experience I mean history maybe not it doesn't repeat but it sure rhymes and that's like 10 years later the same sort of example in Vernon where you know, I, I, I don't know how big Vernon was in 1980, but it couldn't have been much more than 20,000. And we had four kids drafted. And like you, same with your 90 team, we had three kids, well, two kids that played a lot of games and one other that, you know, had a cup of coffee in Quebec. And and we just had a great athlete group. I mean, we won provincials in lacrosse. We won provincials in hockey. And so there's no doubt it has an effect on, I mean, it had a great effect, I'm sure, on you as a player and, and myself. And it's interesting that you talk about the Pee Wee Championship because I got to tell you, it's one of my highlights. I won a cup, but there was something about it. Uh, nobody else cares like we do. Like everybody cares about the cup, so they don't really talk to me about the Pee Wee Championship unless they're <laughs> unless they're from Vernon. But I'll tell you, we had such a spectacular team, and I remember. And you know, when we ran into each other uh, last Saturday night, like speaking to the the Winter Carnival tournament on Saturday at the banquet the Vernon Winter Carnival Tournament, um, I told the kids the same thing, like, you, you're, you're at a special time in your lives, and you'll remember these kids here, these boys and girls now on, on your team, and, and if you do something special, you'll really, really remember them, so, uh, and I do, like, uh, lots of guys in town still in Vernon, and, um, you know, there's a, there's a brotherhood there for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's like a microcosm, right? Of like the bigger picture. I'm sure you, you're, uh, you know, your cup game <clears throat> there with with Detroit, and and I'm sure even like the Cup final with with Montreal, like that. Just I mean, those are bonds that kind of don't go away. And I know that Pee Wee group that we had, like, there's a vast majority off at 47 years old, they're still friends, right, and still stay in contact. It's it's really kind of it's it's crazy, but it's super cool at the same time. Um, what was that? So. 
And and back when we were playing, there wasn't. I mean, there's was only one place to play, which was kind of cool because you knew, like, all the best players were in the one spot. I mean, you all played AAA, right? As, as yep, it was called. Right. And now you know, there's always different leagues, and I know you've been probably removed for, for for a bit now. But like, yeah, there's so many different places to play, and like, who's who's where, and who's this, and who's that. But back when we we were playing, we just kind of knew where everyone was, so it was uh, it was easy. It was easy to kind of know where you were on the totem pole. Like, were you? At, at that peewee age, granted, I mean, you guys, you guys went on to be drafted and NHLers. Was it? Was that kind of was the writing writing on the wall at that point for you? Were you an early developer? Well, there's we were good and we had a lot of good players. And I think our peewee team with Finner and I, and then Bruce Majors was probably um, when we were just young in the peewee. He was probably more dominant than the rest of us, and um, was a really good player. I think in Pee Wee, we started to even out sort of the top players. I played on the second line, though Bruce played on the first line. I think we probably had the same amount or close to the same amount of goals. And then I think for me, um, I saw a difference in Bantam with my teammates a little bit. And not to be, you know, not to be arrogant, but the fact is, is I could feel that um, as the physical play came along and as the speed picked up, I felt like I was getting. I was getting better and better and maybe maybe i felt like i was um because i didn't have that feeling for pv i thought a lot of the players around me i i, I wanted to be the best but i didn't necessarily was the best and i think by the time i was 14 i felt like finner and i kind of separated ourselves from from the other guys to a certain extent and then i was pretty quick because i played in the western hockey league sort of faster than the other ones did and it was one year behind me but whatever it just it just happened a little bit faster for me when i was sort of 14 to 16 and then you know and then i really believed i could i could play yeah the um what what, what was that do you think like i mean uh, that's one of the things that i'm talking like when i'm working with younger athletes now is like the transition from peewee to bantam which is now where the hitting starts. I mean, I think back when, when you were playing, like I think it was Pee Wee, there was, there was still contact there, but not everybody had matured enough yet. And that's an interesting discussion in and of itself. Like I've, I've had that discussion before. Like it seems really wild to me to go from zero contact in Hockey Canada in U13, right? You're not allowed to do anything to all of a sudden full-fledged, you know, body contact at U15 when, you know, for example, like my Hudson, my my oldest, who's not a, He's not super small, but he's not big either. But I'd say he's probably on the lower end of the physical scale right now. He's like five six and a half, one twenty, right? There's kids that are smaller right. in the league. There's a kid in his team who's six two, two hundred. You know, and, and to and to have that be the first year that you're that you're hitting kind of seems a little bit wild to me. But uh, what do you think about that? Well, uh, we were in a transition period because it, this sounds crazy. I might not be completely accurate, but they were going back and forth at the time. And I think when I was 11, um, we were hitting in Pee Wee. And I, I want to say that when we turned 12, they took it out. I'm not positive, but I know there was a transition there. So it was kind of, it was, it was, it was really strange times because we were hitting at nine and 10. Right. And then I think at 12, we weren't allowed to hit. I mean, it kind of suited our team because we were super skilled. right? So, and you know, some kids were starting to get bigger at that 12 year old um, age, but I think there's a big jump. I think that, um, I think physicality for me, I never shied away from it. I'm not a big guy. I wasn't a big guy then. I wasn't super small, but um, I never had a problem with the physicality and, uh, and the speed. And so I think that, that that sort of bantam level, it started to, 
Um, and I don't think anybody talked about whether I was big or not at the time. I was pretty physical and pretty strong. And then when I went to the Western Hockey at 16, it was like, okay, everybody's talking about how small I was because <laughs> I hadn't really grown yet. But I could avoid most of it. I was pretty fast and could avoid most of it. And um, and really kind of, I grew enough, but I, I wasn't growing fast. And I was, I think it was 155 pounds my first year in the Western League. Do you remember how tall you were? Yeah, I think I was like 5'9". I ended up being, you know, 5'10 and a half. And I played most of my career in the, in the NHL just under 180. Um, I wish I was 180 now, but uh, anyway. <laughs> So 185.10. So, yeah, I mean, and that was, well, I mean, you're you're kind of a generation. I mean, being nine years older, like that was a bit of a. Like, there were lots like, of guys. Big, yeah, there was lots of guys my size. I mean, Steve, Steve Eisenman was almost the exact same size. He might have been two, three pounds heavier than me. Right. There lots of guys our size, my size. Um, and, yeah, and, and, I, and I also think, like, you know, we – Growing up just a little bit smaller, again, I wasn't super undersized, but when you go into the Western Hockey League and you're somewhat undersized, you learn how to play. You learn how to protect yourself. You learn how to play in the in, in the traffic. Uh, if you don't learn how to play in the traffic and you don't learn how to protect yourself, you're not really coming out of it. So right. um, good training, I think. Yeah, well, training with what, though? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, is I – you know, some guys who were really big, I noticed when we were growing up, they were really big and a, a lot stronger than all of us. They had a, sometimes, in some ways, they had a bigger challenge when everybody got big and fast because they didn't have that advantage. And a lot of them had their heads down. You know, I, I talk about one great, great player sometimes, Eric Lindros. He's such a great player, but I don't think he ever feared, you know, physicality the way we had to or the way I had to for sure. And there was times when, you know, Eric probably had his head down and uh, he was just so big and powerful that, but you get to the National League level and um, and a lot of guys can hit, even if they're a little bit smaller than you, it, it, it's super physical. So, you know, as a small guy, you always learn how to, how to, how to you know, navigate and uh, not get your head taken off. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think that's, if you can, if you can hack it, and that's like these kids, right, that are smaller right now, and you know, are having problems with the transition to bantam or whatever, but do have some skill and are, are quick, and like obviously they're going to grow at some stage too, right? I think it's, it's it is an advantage. You I mean because you do, you're required to think, you're required yeah. to have your head up, you're required to find space, right? And um, and to your point about the, the the bigger guys, and which is a hard thing for these scouts to do, right? These WHL scouts is it's easy to fall in love with these guys at, you know, 14 years old that are six foot and flying around and looking like monsters out there. But at some point, everyone's going to be the same size as them. And does that, you know, does that skill now, you know, d develop along with them? So I, I yeah, it's interesting. I, th I think you probably had the right package there. Hey, like as far as your growth and it allowed you to be a better player and find your way. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, how many times have we heard, oh, he's too small. And I'm like, there's nobody that's too small. It's just, are you good enough or not? Everybody has their own disadvantages, whether it's a speed thing or a strength thing or uh, you're not the best puck handle, whatever it is. Everybody has something that they're not perfect at, unless you're maybe Connor. Uh, you know, but so there's nobody that's too small. They're either good enough or they're not. And, and they're, 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 their size is a part of who they are. 
and that's it. Like they can either they can either help a team win, and they're five foot eight, or they can't, and that's nobody really cares. Now there's a real biased when you're young or when you're you know people are like ah he's not going to go high because he's too small. Well, uh, I think I hope some of that bias is going is going away. But the, the fact is is you either help us win hockey games or you can't. And there's a lot of undersized guys that they make a lot of a lot of shit happen in the National Hockey League today. So you're either good enough or you're not. You know, that's it. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Uh, and finding finding a way to be valuable, you know, at those sizes. One, one of the stories I like and I share with some of my clients is Nathan Gerby, who is like on the farthest end of the spectrum you could be. Um I mean, he's five four, I think five three. I mean, he's not playing anymore, but he did for a while. And, uh, and, I, and just reading his like Players Tribune article about like what his life was like growing up, you know, with everyone, everyone obviously in the world telling him that he's too small, uh, and it just created a mindset about him that was, you know, the exact opposite. I mean, he, he knew he had to be super strong because he wasn't right. going to be tall, right? So like you know, his work ethic in the gym and all these things that he would do, like to your point, like to make up for this lack of height, right? And and uh, and to play in the National League as long as he did at five foot four is is pretty remarkable. Yeah, but absolutely. He, yeah, he was good enough. You know, I mean he brought yeah. some team and I mean can you imagine like that'd be pretty inspiring too. See yeah. a guy out there doing what he was doing um at his height. I think that makes everyone else be a little bit bigger too. Yeah, absolutely. The um the WHO is a big jump there, and and you had seventy three points in fifty one games, if I see that right, with the, with Kelowna, uh, and then we're a fourth rounder, which is obviously nothing wrong with the fourth rounder. Actually, it would be more like a third rounder today because you're seventy ninth overall. Uh, what 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 was that season like for you? It seems like those are numbers that maybe you should have been a little bit higher, uh, as far as you know, in today's day and age, it looks like you would be. Well. It, it's a good story. I mean, I was rated 16th overall at Christmas, uh, and I wasn't hurt. Uh, and I was, you know, obviously leading our team in scoring. I was scoring. Um, and I got hurt, I think, in January or February. I hurt my knee. And so I missed a lot of the last part of the season, and that's the 51 games or whatever. It was 20 games or whatever. So it looked like I had a very good chance to score 50 goals that year. Um and by, you know, I had a good playoff, but we got knocked out in the first round by um, New West. And then um, <clears throat> before the draft, I dropped to 31. And, you know, my agent took me to the draft. It was looked like I was going to go for sure in the second round. And people were wondering, may, maybe sneak late in the first round. 21 teams at the time, as you know. And uh, I slipped all the way to the fourth. And, um, you know, my line mate got picked ahead of me, who... You know, never played a game or anything, but he was a good, great guy. Um, but it was just one of those things. It was pretty, it was pretty horrifying at the draft to wait, you know, 70, 78 picks. And Montreal picked me, but they were fantastic the minute they picked me. My, my lineman got picked to Montreal, to Montreal the round before that. And I, I think I was, I was fourth overall, but I was the sixth pick for the Canadians. They had two first round picks that year. Oh, and, um, <clears throat> And we had some good players in that draft. That Tom Chorsky was picked in the first round. He's a high school kid out of Minnesota. I think, geez, uh, oh yeah, the first, the number one pick was um, Jose Charbonneau, who again just more had a cup of coffee with Montreal. But anyway, it, it is what it is, and um, yeah. maybe it motivated me more. I had a really good camp. I went into Montreal, had a great camp, 
and um, they were going to sign me immediately. So I went to I went went to main camp, and in those days, Montreal had a huge rookie camp. So you know, I I guess um, did it affect me at all? Maybe it motivated me more. So I was disappointed going the fourth round, but it doesn't really matter now. And I, I tell people I, I told people that after all the time. All right. It doesn't matter. Like. And it doesn't matter now even if you get drafted. Like lots of guys I played with never got drafted and became really good NHL players. So, so that's a measuring stick, and it certainly hits your ego a little bit. But I guess I probably took it the right way and just motivated me more. How was it though in the moment? Because that's a long time to wait. Uh, it was really it was bad. And I was with another guy. And I'm just trying to remember his name. Um, he was rated right around the same time I was. So we we're sitting together, uh, really close. And our families were close, and the stress from the families and from us—it was, yeah, it was really, it was really tough. I and mean, once it happened, I forgot all about it. I went to the, I went down to the table, and you know, Sarah Savard, who was one of my favorite people that I ever, you know, ever met in the game and played for, he was a fantastic guy. So they made me feel at home right away. They invited my parents over to their suite uh, right after the draft to, you know, go have a couple of drinks and a bite to eat and serve a suite. And so, you know, quickly forgotten, but it was a, it was a tough day. It was it was a day that I I guess I'm happy I was there because I got to meet Sarah right away and the, and the brass. But um, that was a long day. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I don't know if you know my story. I've told it on here before. I was tell it quickly, but I was told by the Toronto Maple Leafs I was going to be their first round pick the next day, right? right. Uh, it was the last meeting I yeah. had at the draft. Cliff Fletcher <clears throat> kissed me and him. He shook my hand, like said it, you know, looked me in the eye and said, we're, we're going to trade up and draft for you. And anyways, that never happened on draft day. Won't get into that. But then I waited to 31. So now that's not even close to the same. But like I thought Toronto yeah. was going to go up and say my name. And then right. I was sitting there for 16 picks and like, just like yeah it was crazy and like and now it sounds so stupid right because i was 31st overall and that super you know nice party and everything else but like it's all about expectation <laughs> and when the expectation is something else it's tough to keep your head on straight when you're going through that absolutely <laughs> yeah absolutely all right just going to take a short break from the discussion with brent gilchrist to give a shout out to a new reviewer. You know, I love the testimonials. I love the reviews of the podcast and I like to share them when I when I can. And uh, especially ones from the United States. I don't know why, I just love that the, the American audience is growing. Uh, me being a Canadian boy up here in Western Canada just to see the geographic reach and uh, promoting, uh, promoting the, the, the podcast out in, uh, to the neighbors to our south is fantastic. So I uh, want to share this one. Uh, it's a five-star review and it says amazing life perspectives in hockey is the uh, is the heading and eating is cool Duh, exclamation point exclamation 89 via apple's podcast so uh eating is cool says jason is a gifted facilitator whose guests share their incredible journeys and lessons inside and outside of hockey as a hockey parent i really appreciate the honesty and authentic conversations that can help our family navigate youth hockey as a fan of the game i enjoyed hearing the inside that's awesome really appreciate it eating this cool thanks for taking the time to do that and if you are somebody out there right now who hasn't taken the time to write i mean that is i mean there's what there's four sentences there that can seem daunting it doesn't have to be four sentences it can be one sentence it really is a quick 
uh, a quick deal to do it. I really appreciate it if you're some out there who has listened to the podcast and appreciates the guests and their lessons and, and appreciates what I'm trying to do here with the podcast. By all means, uh, please take the time on your Apple device to, uh, to leave a review. Uh, as you've probably heard me say before, I believe it's about 60 to 70% of people listening uh, is on an Apple device, is on an iPhone uh, or an Apple computer. And, and so therefore you're listening to iTunes and iTunes has the review network available to them, unlike other uh, distributors of, uh, of online audio content. So please, Apple listeners, uh, get in there and I'll give you a shout out uh, during the next podcast here and, and leave a uh, acknowledge you acknowledging us here at Up My Hockey. So thanks again for everyone listening and we'll get back to the podcast with Brent Gilbert. Mike Needham, you're just talking about being like, so six, you, you said there was five, you were the sixth pick from from Montreal. Well, Montreal's history is, you know, I mean, they, they've all, they always built it through the draft once the draft came and they always had way more picks than anybody. They were always trading assets for picks. And they wanted to pick as many players as they could. And I, I, I looked at it a few years ago, how many pick players they picked in 85. Um, and they had, I, I, there's 12 rounds in those days. And I bet you they had 14 or 15 picks. And two in the first round and, you know, one, two. I think they had three in the third round. Or two in the third round as well. So, anyway, that was their model. They picked a lot of players. They picked a lot of French-Canadian kids hoping, you know, hoping to, have one of those those guys come through and um, but they had it right man. they knew how to do it they had and you know when I went to the American League to play in Sherbrooke it was all young guys Pat Burns was our coach we were all 20 year olds and so that's how they, they developed players and they were better at it than anybody and it was a for me it was just a great place to be drafted and come up in that system because um, it was all about winning the tradition was definitely still there and um, and you felt it every day and they treated you first class and um, lots of pressure to win, lots of pressure to play well, but I didn't know any different. That's uh, that's right. how I came up. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, like, Mike Needham, uh, he was a Pittsburgh Penguin. I don't even remember the name. He's with yeah. OHA. No, no, I played with Mike. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. So I played he, with Mike in Dallas. Oh, okay, perfect. So he... He was just talking about his his uh, shared the story of him getting into pro hockey, and he had a you know a killer last year of of junior. I think he had fifty nine goals in sixty <clears> games or something. But he was a I think he might have been a fourth round pick too. And anyways, he went to main camp, had a good main camp, he said, but then got sent down and actually led the IHL team in in scoring when he was there. And uh, and then the season started, and he was a healthy scratch for the first month, first twelve games, right? And uh, Anyways, we talked through that and like how hard that was for him. But he also like said, you realize that the game's not fair, you know, because there was guys that were picked before him or guys that were probably the GM was saying this, we want these guys in the lineup and so on and so forth. And and sometimes you just got to, you know, wait, bide your time and work your way in. So why I'm saying that is with, with the six picks before you, you I mean, you di you say it doesn't matter, but I mean, some aspects it does matter, and you still need Good to work point. your ass off, and someone still needs to recognize that, right? Because there's probably guys that they, you know, I will use the word want to succeed maybe a little bit more than you. So I think it's a really good point, and I will say that's why I think that the way Montreal ran their, their organization was just a step above most in those days. And, you know, the hierarchy was very tight they they did not treat superstars in a way that um 
made other players feel like it was all about the team. And I would say from the moment I was there and I had a good training camp, um, I think that they were, I, I think they believed I could play the minute they saw me in, in that environment. And um, I think you're right. Like, I mean, Jose Charbonneau went up first. He was, the, he was a 12th overall pick and he was French Canadian, big guy, good skater. But boy, it changed fast. You know, there's no doubt when you when you perform in that organization at that time, <clears throat> there was they wanted to win, and so I think I, I, I take your point. I think it, I think there's it's real, but man, in Montreal, they knew how to run teams. They they were just like whoever whoever's playing well is going to get on the ice. And you're right. I mean, we had superstar Stephen Richer and. You know, when Reach was struggling, like he wasn't on the bench. When I was struggling, I was on the bench, of course. But that's that's a lot different. He's a 50-goal scorer. But I never felt like they were favoring a higher pick that they had, you know, high hopes for. It was an interesting place. Serge Savard was one of the best leaders I've ever seen. Right. Pat ended up being my coach. He got the job the next year, but we basically went up together. So, um yeah, what, what an organization, what a place to play. Jacques Lemaire was there. He helped me a lot. He's, you know, sort of my size. And yeah, just just the whole organization. I can't say enough about coming up there. Is that? Do you think that's uh does that have to be a cog, like a big cog in the wheel of like, I know you're in business now and you obviously you have all, all <clears throat> experience in the NHL, but just a meritocracy-based system. Like, is, is that is that crucial to, to have? It's so good. I mean, I I played in some great organizations, and you know Detroit was obviously fantastic. Um, Chris Nyland actually, Chris Nyland was a teammate of mine, and um, when he was leaving on his way out, I remember we were it was the end of a season party or whatever, and he said to Matthew Snyder and I, he said, uh, "You guys, you don't understand what it's like elsewhere. It's not the same as here. the The team, the the uh, focus on winning." not just the players and the management and the coaches, but everybody in the forum, every usher, every doorman. It was about the team and it was about winning and you saw the attitude about it. So um, the leadership and the Molson family and Serge and our president, Ronald Corey, it, it, they just knew how, how, how it was supposed to be. And meritocracy is the, the best word. And I think, you know, leadership from the top, like people talk about, you know, owners and, you know, when, when you have a struggling ownership team or there's a controversial owner, it affects the team. I don't care what anybody says. And when we were in, um, when I was in Dallas, we had Norm Green, who was a really good guy, but he didn't have the money to own an NHL team, in my opinion, sorry, Norm, but, um, and it affected our team because it was a stress that he really couldn't afford to be, in my opinion, in the game. And it affected our team and we had a good team. And the next year we really struggled through a, a process of ownership change. And when the ownership changed to Thomas Hicks, um, you know, we, were, we, we almost won the President's Trophy that year. And then we beat him, we beat Dallas in 98 and then they won in 99. Like, like the ownership and the, the, the hierarchy of the leadership is incredibly important in any organization. And uh, owners matter. And and then they hire the right people. But you know you're in support from the top. And in Montreal, there was no no place like it. I mean, um, it was incredible in those days. 
So Pat Burns is a, I mean, I guess an icon, you could say, in, in the sport. He, he was a coach for a long time and, and won and uh, and had a fiery personality from, I mean, from the outside looking in. I, I never played for him. Uh, what, what, was it, what was Pat like? Because you said you guys sort of came up together. Did you see him grow and mature as a coach through, through the time? You were yeah, for sure. I mean, he was a, he was a QPP, QP, I think said the Quebec Police Force. And this, his first year out of being a cop and being a full-time coach was Sherbrooke in 1987. And, you know, I played for him there. I led the team scoring and he was fantastic to me. And, you know, here's my break, I guess. Like, I'm not saying I wouldn't have been a player, but, you know, I think it happened pretty fast. Because in those days, you know, a lot of guys spent two, three years in the minors in Montreal. They were still in that mode. And uh, after the season, he said, you had a great season. I'm your biggest supporter. And I'm telling them in Montreal that you'll play next year. Well, two months later, he got the job. So, you know, that's like, okay. And uh, anyway, I did get sent down. <clears throat> they were pretty deep in center, as you know, Bobby Smith, Guy Carmen, Scrooland, Corson. You know, we, we were deep. I remember we were such a deep team. So I got sent down. I was leading the team scoring seven games. I think Scrooge and Carmen both got hurt. And I got called up. Played against Mario my first game. And uh, How'd that go? I, it, yeah, it was good. It was good. Uh, we, um, they actually had a struggling start. The first 11 games, they were like uh, four and seven when I got called up. And um, I think we lost eight or nine games the rest of the season. And it was just it was just a transition with a new coach and everything. But I never went back to the minors. I was uh, I was October of '88, uh, and I never never played another game in the minors. That's wild. The uh, but Pat, Pat, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll go back to Pat because um, here's a guy who was a cop and coaching in uh, Hull, coached a bunch of good players in Hull, Luke Robitai and. Uh, and so he comes up and, um, yeah, he, he, he kind of was a cop. Like he was tough and he was barking orders all the time. But as you got to know Pat, he was a softy. And his, and, his, and his bark was way, way bigger than his bite, right? He's super emotional. I mean, he's just a super emotional coach. And, but he went, to, he went to bat for you, period. Like if somebody, you know, he could get mad at you. He might even say something to the media. Not much. Not, not very rarely, but... If somebody attacked a player, a media personality or somebody, he'd be like, nobody. Nobody talks about my players like that. Their parents and maybe me, but nobody else. So he, he backed he backed guys up and they played for him. That's it. He's a good guy. That's awesome. That's a pretty big, uh, I don't know, like the trust, I guess, is the word that comes up, right? Like, you know, I mean, like when, when you see a guy doing <clears throat> that for you or him saying that and then you end up being on the team and like you build this trust and... I think the coaches that that get the trust from the majority of the guys, like you're, you're you're giving a little more for that guy, are you not? Well, I think that's the key word, Jason. You've been around long enough. It's it, everything is trust, and the minute you lose the trust to your players, like they don't think they, that you have their back, like you can you can rip a player apart and you can be super tough on them and you can be mad at the way they're playing or the way they're working, um, face to face, but if they don't think they, that you have their back with the media or with management. If you're, if they think, if they don't trust you, you're done. In my opinion, trust is everything. You can be as hard on a player I think as you want. Maybe not in today's game, in those, in those days, 
uh, and players are still playing for you because um, they think they got you know if you got my back, I'm going to play for you. Yeah, and their best interest as a player too. I think that's another interesting aspect of coaching, right? Like you can lean on a guy as long as he believes that you're trying to get him better. You know, like I because I think guys want to sure. get better, and I think there's enough professionalism and understanding there that that that's what they want to do too. But it's like, you know, so, some guys push you and, and I'm sure you probably felt it and you didn't feel like it was coming from the right spot. Like it was almost like they were trying to make you worse, you know? And then other times it would mm -hmm. come at you and it's like, no, this guy, this guy believes in me. Like he, he sees more in me. I don't know. I, I, I've never been able to put my finger on why it felt different sometimes, but sometimes it just does. I think you're right. I mean, I, I think one thing that I've, that I've, um, well, I learned a bit of this after when I retired and I started coaching. I was coaching a midget triple A's and what I learned from that experience, you know, being on the other side, you learn so much. But I think here, here's the thing that I think the most of it. I didn't really see a lot of this till I, I played for Scotty Bowman and, and Scotty operated in chaos. And it was pretty funny as an older player. It didn't bother you because it was it was quite harmless. But the one thing with Scotty is he, you never saw him make a decision to protect his job. And obviously he was in a position that it didn't matter. He was Bowman and he had 10 cups and blah, blah, blah. So the thing is, is when a coach is under pressure and he starts making decisions that you know those decisions are about his job, not about the team or about a player. It's not about necessarily what's best for the team, but it's the decision that is the safest or looks the best or don't make the real hard decision on a particular, let's say on a star player. Um, everybody knows it. The whole locker room knows that's a decision about his job and not about the team. Where Bowman, you know, he had the luxury of making the decision that he thought was right. I'm not, not, not saying he's always right, but he wasn't making an ass covering decision ever. And you've been with coaches before that's like, well, you know, when things aren't going well, they make ass covering decisions, right? Yeah, sure. So, you, you say uh, operated chaos or operated in chaos? Is that how you described described it earlier? What is what is what do you mean yeah, by that? Yeah. Well, he, he he kept everybody off balance, really, and um, he wasn't traditional in terms of there was always something going on with a player or um, young guys. He was really really more difficult on young guys because he wanted an old team, right? He wanted old experienced players. So some of the things were um, quite harmless when you're 30, but he just, he, he just like practice, for instance, some practices you had to go in the gym after because there was absolutely no workout. And so Scotty, Scotty watched hockey constantly. Like he'd go home after our games and watch all the games that all be taped. And I'm certain that he would see something that happened in a game um, the night before. And then he'd come to practice and try to recreate something that was unique or interesting that he saw. And we didn't know what he was, we didn't know what he was after. So he'd explain it, but so, you know, you got guys skating around with the puck kind of like warmer, warm, like they're looking at, like they're looking for direction. And my first year in Detroit, I played with um, Steve Eisenman and Derek McCarty and, uh, Stevie, our, our best player, the great Steve Eisen, was a terrible practice player. Admittedly, he was a terrible practice player. So we were the green line, and um, we weren't getting called out for any complicated drills because Stevie would definitely screw the drill up. And would, would he, so, so it would be somebody else would be Drake's line, you know, the grind line, who were great, great workers and 
smart players and they'd be able to go out and they'd screw it up and Scotty would yell at them, but didn't want, didn't want Stevie to mess the drill up the top. So yeah, he, he was a super interesting guy to play for. Um, you know, at times it was frustrating, but at the end of the day, best bench coach I've, I've ever seen. And, um, and just, just sometimes just made you relax and kind of laugh because it was funny. And, uh, and his personality was huge, and um, yeah, there are lots of stories about Scotty, and of course Ken Holland, another Vernon guy who's the manager, and he's got some great stories about, I guess, trying to manage Scotty, and what he'd tell you is I wasn't managing, he was managing me, and the reason Scotty and Kenny got along so well is Kenny knew who the boss was, and it wasn't him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, his it, it's kind of one of those crazy scenarios, like w with his success of of the championships, right? I mean, it, it was just I, I don't even know how to say it because I don't mean to disrespect Scotty Bowman, but you hear some stories and it almost seems like he was the mad professor sometimes, right? Yeah. Like it was like it was like no one really got it, but maybe that was part of the brilliance, you know? Or, um, but you mentioned him being a great bench coach. I'd never heard that before. Can you like what what uh, what would put him to the top of the totem pole there with the, with his uh, bench prowess? Well, I, I think that he didn't miss anything to start with. Like he watched him, a lot of times he didn't say anything, and sometimes that would that sort of kept us off balance because we we weren't getting much direction. But um, he, I think he handled the bench really well. And some some nights it was like strange that he'd be really really talkative, and that would kind of keep us off balance because now he's now somebody put a corner on me when he was just. <laughs> but I think you know. I always said we, we laughed because, um, you know, we had obviously weapons and we had such a team. And, you know, I, I just remember sometimes when the games were on the line and let's say late in the game it's tied and we get a power play. Well, he's calling a timeout immediately. And, you know, I'm sure people in the press in the on TV are saying, oh, I wonder what the, the great Scotty Bowman's telling them. You know what he's telling them? Nothing. Not a thing. He just, you know. Tap Stevie and Shani and Nick and they jump over the boards. He wouldn't say anything, but I think the message is the game's going to be won right here. So let's just take a deep breath. You know, wasn't setting any plays up or anything, but then of course we'd go score. And I'm sure in the TV they're saying <laughs> that he did it again. Yeah. But those things just to make everybody recognize when the game was on the line. That's it. The game's here now. Let's just let's, let's win it here and not go into overtime or whatever. So, right. yeah, just those subtle things. Um, but he was in command of, of, of the game. And every once in a while, he thought he had to go off on the referee, so he would. But it was rare. He wasn't very vocal or talkative behind the bench. His, um, I heard him speak once at a coach's conference. It was like a hot stove with some of, you know, the – the legends, right, of, of, the, of the coaching game. And uh, he was super articulate. And the other thing that that uh, kind of, well, I guess I shouldn't say surprised me, but he was like his memory. And I guess I couldn't I couldn't call him on it because I didn't know what he was talking about. But he like was down to the minute and like the games, he would tell these stories. And it was, it just seemed like he was super dialed in with uh, with that aspect, right? The nuances and the details of the game. And it sounds Don't like- yeah, I mean, doesn't forget anything. I'll, I'll tell you one story. Um, the 100th anniversary of the Canadians in uh, 2009, there was a big, they brought a big contingent of us back. And um, 
Scotty, you know, I, I retired like six, seven years before that. Um, he seeked me out right away because I was a red one. And he, he, I think, is, well, my wife asked him once, would you, would, how you associate yourself with the, as a Canadian or as a red one? He says, as a red one. So we talked a lot that weekend, but everybody was there, you know, from Ballyboe was still alive and, you know, the Pocket Rocket and all the great players that were still alive, Ganey and Robinson and Savard. And we were in the alumni room and Scotty was talking to me. And I think he did feel comfortable with me because I played for him not, not long ago. And Bob Ganey, who was a good friend, was running the, the Habs at the time. He was a GM. And he came over and stood beside us as Scotty's talking to me. And Scotty's kind of looking at Bob, but still talking to me. And now I'm getting uncomfortable because I know all Bob wants to do is talk to Scotty about his team. The Habs were struggling at the time. And um, he knew that if he had 20 minutes with Scotty, Scotty would dissect his team in 20 minutes. And I'm kind of like trying to back away, like, you know, just get out of here so Bob can talk to Scotty about his team anyway. Finally, there was a break in the action. I kind of slipped away and Bob said, hey, Scotty, can I talk to you about my team for a little while? And I think I know Bobby Smith, Smith was there at the time. He owns the, the Moosehead in Halifax. And he said the same thing. I got to go talk to Scotty. He saw one of my games the other day. I want to hear what he has to say about my team. And in, in November, uh, we were in Detroit for the 25th anniversary of the Cup teams. And Brendan Shanahan said the same thing to me. I got to go talk to Scotty about my team. <laughs> yeah, and he's 89 years old and watches hockey all day long and Jeez. still will tell you what's oh, obviously super respected. Yeah, he just, he, he watches. That's all he does is watch every game and he can tell you about Austin Matthews or... You know, and, and if you open it up, he'll just start spewing it out. You know, Austin Matthews reminds me of Jean Beliveau. He's got all the comparisons. and right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting talking to him. That's super cool. All right, just going to take another short break from the conversation with Brent Gilchrist to share another testimonial. I said that I should do more of this, and I should, so that's why I'm doing it. Because uh, sharing the success stories is such a positive reinforcement about the change that is able to be made like the potential of our athletes with the right tools and with the right coaching to really reach up and 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 reach for the stars right to be able to chase these goals and dreams and have them step into their own potential and um i just love i just love hearing this this was a, a note from a mother of a 13 year old uh, just turned 13 who has just graduated the peak potential hockey project so you may or may not know the peak potential hockey project is a four-week uh, mindset program. Uh, I originally designed it for like junior age players, but there is players as young as 12, 13 that have seen great results with it. And so I'm not one to tell anyone uh, what the right age is. I think the right age is whatever age you want it to be. And, and for this young player, uh, this 13 year old player, it was the perfect age, uh, according to the mom, because she says, I am beyond happy with your program. This was information that I've been trying to get my kids to understand to no avail. <laughs> uh, 
uh, like a lot of us out there, I think, right? Uh, parents, uh, it's tough being a parent because no one wants to listen to their parents, but sometimes a, a similar message from somebody else can uh, can stick. So the right message at the right time is uh, uh, can be super valuable. So anyways, back to her back to her testimonial. The way you lay it out for a, for a kid like Austin in hockey sports terms, he is actually understanding and he has been able to put it into practice, exclamation point. If I had this type of guidance when I was in a competitive industry, who knows how much further I could have gone. I haven't watched everything myself, and I have let Austin do this on his own accord without any pressure from me, but what I have watched has inspired me as well. Thank you so much. I know Austin is sad as ending, and so am I, but I know he will continue working at the strategies you have shown him. These are life skills, not just hockey skills, and this will translate into everything he does in the future. Thank you. So... What a cool letter to read, and, and uh, I'm so grateful when parents take the time to write, and sometimes kids take the time to write and share similar similar feelings, and and to me, that is what it's all about. And I think she nailed the, I mean, she hit the nail on the head with the idea that why I'm able to share what I'm doing and why I feel no qualms in doing it is because this helps your hockey player be a better hockey player but it also helps them be a better human and it helps them be more productive in other aspects of their life well beyond uh, the hockey realm. So whenever they decide to take their skates off uh, and hang them up, if they ever do that, then they will still have these skills and it helps them in school. It helps them with their friendships. It helps them in relationships. It helps them with different levels of adversity and, and things that will come their way. And, uh, and isn't that a great gift? You know, isn't that a great gift to empower our, our young athletes to, to feel stronger and more confident in, in whatever shows up in their life. And, um, and yeah, so, you mean, for me and, and for, I know the cost isn't inconsequential to take the program. Um, but when we boil it down to what we, what we do and what we invest in our, in our athletes, you know, whether it be the $300 hockey stick or the $600 skates or, you know, the dry land training or the gym memberships or all this stuff. And, and rarely do we sink time into investing in their, in their personal growth, right? In their, in their inner growth and in their, and in their mental growth. And, and these are the skills that are going to continue on. You mean outside of the power skating and outside of the skill sessions. And, uh, and not only that, but the training also helps them take more advantage of the skill sessions and the training sessions and helps them be more productive on the ice when it comes to performance related things. So, um, thank you so much there, um, for sharing that, um, I am super grateful for, for those words, and I am also grateful for, for anyone who, who chooses to sign up and, and to trust the process that this is something that could potentially help their kids. And if you are interested in, in joining a future uh, guided mission uh, of the Peak Potential Project, that can be found at upmyhockey.com, as usual. And uh, now back to the episode with Brent Gilker. I wanted to talk. Well, first of all, actually, I wrote down the note because you said your first your first game up was against Mario, and I don't know how uh, how much you're connected into social media or whatever. But Eric Lindros was just on a, a podcast a little while ago, and he was asked about the greatest players of all time, and he he mentioned two players. One wasn't, and neither one was Gretzky, which was quite quite shocking. Uh, but he said uh, Messier was like his personal favorite, and then he said. Lemieux, no one was even close. He said he was just like scary. I'm paraphrasing. Um, what What were your thoughts on on that? Like uh, on on Mario, I guess, or maybe even the contrast between him and, and him and Wayne. I'm sure you've been asked that question before. But what uh, what what did you see with number sixty six? 
Well, I think from a physical standpoint and just trying to defend, because um, that's kind of all he did with Mario, was just try to defend. Um, he was harder to handle. Um, just, I think I took a face off against him at center ice. I know I did. I don't think. And I won the face off, but he had it behind me. Like he just reached over and grabbed the winning, the draw from behind me, pulled it back. I'm gonna, you're like, what do I do with this guy? Um, you know, I think my opinion is Wayne was the best player that ever lived because of his accomplishments and what he did. If you were playing against the two of them, there's such a contrast because Wayne never, it didn't feel like it was hard to play against him. There was no, he wasn't overpowering with it in. He just did things and you're like, wow, did he just pass that right through me? I knew it was coming and it went right through my stick and my skates to the backside and somebody scored. He, his dominance was, you know, controlling the game with his vision and his passing. And Mario had great, was a great passer, don't get me wrong, but he physically, you couldn't handle him when he had the puck. Yeah. You know, Wayne may beat you, but, you know, you had a better chance to, 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 to defend with Wayne when he had the puck, I think. And we, we often turned away from him because he, he did that to you. He made you turn away. Yeah. He'd delay and change of pace. But Mario, like, what do you do with him? How do you, how do you check him? Like, you go to hit him and he puts it through your legs and just kind of goes over top of you. Or if he wants to lean back into the reverse shoulder, he's stronger than you are. So, yes, in those, in those instances, they're just, they're, they're hard to compare. Right. For me, I just compare the accomplishment um, and, you know, the way Wayne changed record books. And yeah. that, that's what I would say. But from a, from trying to compare him, playing against him, it's, it's, the contrast is massive. It's just there's no there's no rhyme or reason. Right. Yeah, I know. I agree with you. I mean, the, the, what he was able to accomplish over the length of his career, and obviously Mario did so much of the stuff he did with, like, you know, with the back that he had and through the cancer yeah. and had a shorter career and, like, kind of like a Bobby Orr scenario. Like, how good have Bobby Orr been, right? Like, so from a physical individual specimen, I, I think that there's probably an interesting conversation there. But, um, well, and I, and I would not, like, like, this is not taking anything away from Mario. Like, he was, I mean, from a, from a physical and, talent standpoint, I, I don't know if you can compare anybody to him. Um, it, so there's nothing to take away from it. It's just when you look at the record books, it's hard not to say that Wayne, his accomplishments are just un, un, unachievable for anybody. It's not even close. Yeah. <laughs> it's not even close. But that, that's an interesting discussion too. So, I mean, you're a, you're a, you know, goal a game guy in uh, in the WHL. Uh, when you when you by the time you left, you mean you're, well, almost in your second year too. But high goal scorer, you were a point of game guy in the AHL, and then in your long you know seven eight hundred games almost in the NHL, you reached the twenty goal plateau twice. Um, obviously, nothing, not not degrading that by any stretch of the imagination, but it, like that funnel gets so tight. Or can you talk about like what the difference yeah. is between being a between a, being a good junior and being a, a pro prolific NHLer? Yeah, I mean. It's interesting because when I came up and I think I didn't really have a, an offensive output season until my fourth year. And and then I never attained that fourth year, those fourth year numbers again. And, you know, I, I look at it, I, I feel like I left some on the table, um, you know, that I felt like I should have scored 20 goals more. And I would even say, Jay, that I was put in a position to do it quite a few times because it's not like I didn't play on the power play. Like I did, I got, I got power play time. Um, you know, I wasn't a first or 
automatic second line power play guy, but I got lots of time on the power play, particularly in, my, in the seasons where I was, you know, having more offensive output. Um, and, you know, I, I think when I played, I was obviously doing a lot of, of you know, playing against some top players in, in more defensive role in a lot of ways, but man, I had opportunity to, to be on the offensive side too. And, and in, a lot of times I felt like the coaches and the team were looking like you're part of the offensive, you know, part of the offense of the team too. They weren't certainly discounted, but um, there's two things. My first 10 years were is one career and my last five is a different career. And, uh, you know, my numbers, my first 10 years were not bad. If you just look at those and say, oh, that's not bad. My, my numbers, my last five years were anemic because um, I wasn't the same player after I won the cup in 98. I went through three, three surgeries, abdominal surgeries, and so no, there's no excuses here. I just, I just wasn't the same player. At my size, um, you know, losing a step through that process um, was not very productive. And you know, at times I was, um, you know, I was hanging on, and I was, uh, you know, had enough experience and some would say enough uh, hockey intelligence to, to navigate my way through, but I was not productive my last uh, five years. Didn't play a lot, missed a lot of games, and um, was obviously a player that, you know, they still saw some value in, could, could help in situations. And, um, but, you know, that's, I think, the biggest thing. I think, you know, I feel like there's a lot left out there. And, you know, I, I, it's not a regret or anything, but I just felt like I could contribute more a lot of times offensively, and it, it is what it is. Yeah. Anything that you would pinpoint to? I mean, I like the fact that you brought that up because sometimes when you're coming up, right, there, there's, you, to, to jump into a top six role or whatever is hard to do. You have to earn your way uh, doing another thing. And then sometimes you become really good at that and then maybe you don't get that opportunity, right? To, you don't get seen as an offensive guy. But you said you, you were seen at different points and given the opportunity. Did you just not click? Or, or what do you remember about those times uh, when you were given those chances? Yeah, well, I think... The first thing is, is you know, we came to Montreal, we were a very defensive team. We had lots of offensive players, but we were a defensive team. We always won the Jennings Trophy as the lowest goals against. And so you did you did learn that game, and it did, you know, you, there certainly wasn't a lot of, um, I don't want to say offensive game, but you were really responsible with the puck. So that sort of changed my game from a, a junior and, and an American League player where you're expected to score and you take some chances to score. So that, that's one. Um, but I think that uh, for whatever reason, I just don't feel like I was consistent enough offensively. And I and, and it's just, you know, it's some sometimes it's confidence. Sometimes it's the role you're playing. Sometimes it's, you know, the game, the game was tough in the 90s, as you know, because you came up, I'm just trying to remember when you came up, but like, the late nineties to the two thousands, my, my arms had welts on them and being an undersized player in that game where you could hook and hold and slash, um, there was nowhere to move. There was games where it's just like, so if I did have some advantage that I could, you know, I was quick and I could, I was fast. Uh, a lot of that was nullified. So it was a, that was a tough period of time. Right. Um, and that these are non excuses, but I, I feel like I, there was times when I could have performed better offensively, and sometimes I was given the chance to, and, and I didn't. And you know, it's a, it's a, 
it's a mystery. And then, and then again, by the last four or five years of my career, I was just a, I was a different player, and I was trying to enjoy being in the National Hockey and trying to contribute to the team, but um, but wasn't certainly as healthy. I was older and unhealthy, and those right. weren't great, not great combinations. Yeah, well, I was going to actually talk to you about that because when you came up, you know, like you said, like you, this, I mean, five ten, you know, one eighty was was fairly common, and then late nineties, two thousands. I mean, that the league got really big too, right? It did I mean even yeah. even bigger than now? I think I'm not positive, yeah. but um, I remember I was at a uh, players meeting, an NHL players meeting in Whistler. Can't remember what year it was, two thousand or something like that. And uh, I was standing in the lobby talking to Eric Lindros and. Can't remember who the other guys were. Ciccone. There's three of them, I think. And I walked away and my wife was there and she goes, Oh my God. Like I feel so terrible for you. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, You actually play against those guys? And they were three of them. <laughs> it probably looked pretty bad to her, right? Like standing next to Eric. Yeah. And she's like, Oh, I feel terrible for you. <laughs> you know, and as you know, as a player, you never really thought about that, right? But then yeah. I look back and I'm like, yeah, these guys are getting big. And the other problem with these guys that were getting big is they were fast. Yeah. Right? And when I came in the league in the, in the 80s, you know, there were some big guys, but I always felt like, you know, I could navigate that with speed. Well, you're not really faster than these guys anymore. <laughs> like, they're big and fast. And the game changed a lot, and the physicality was there. And obviously, there was a lot more um, clutching and grabbing, hooking and holding was just part of it. Yeah, you talked about kind of the the, the two the two different careers and and uh, or the two different players, and you didn't have many games there the last five years and didn't have much production. But you said like there's a reason that they kept you around, and and maybe you didn't really completely recognize it at the time. But you know, once you retire and, and you know all the things that are said about you and what a you know, what a character guy you were and what a great teammate you were. Like, uh, it's one thing that I try and preach, at least, you know, to these younger guys is like the value, the value of that, you know, and, and how it gives you opportunities. It extends careers. It uh, it just, <laughs> there's just so many things it does to you to be a good, good human. Do you think that that was part of like the, the recipe for you of, of why those last five years happened? I think, there, I think there's two things. So one thing in Montreal that I will say that, you know, the way we were commanded to play on both sides of the puck and even sometimes more so on the defensive side of the puck. Um, what I found in Montreal is I started to turn into a little bit of a utility player and that carried on with me. So I think that most coaches I played for believed I could play on a first line in situations where they needed it. Not, not saying that I'd go on the first line and stay there, but I played on the first line with Madano sometimes in, in in Dallas and then I did play quite a bit on Stevie's line you know my first year in Detroit well we were a line even though there was no first line in Detroit we had three of them right um, so the utility thing was very helpful to extend my career I could penalty kill I could play on a fourth line and be productive and when they needed a left winger up on the first line I could I, I, could, I could fill in there and so any of the lines I could probably be productive for a period of time that's one. And then I think that my time in Montreal taught me that the team is the only thing that really matters. And yes, your career matters and you matter, but when the team's successful, it's so much easier for for you. When, when the team's winning, 
they're not really looking around to make a bunch of changes, right? So you become a good teammate because it's part of your survival. When we win, you know, your job is probably a lot less at risk. And, you know, you think about that as a player. And so, you know, coming out of Detroit, I had a great experience in Detroit. In the last two years, I was hurt quite a bit. But, you know, great experience. And I think I was really respected by the team and, um, and probably stayed in Detroit longer than I should have, considering how good the team was and where I was in my career. But I think they thought, hey, low maintenance, does everything we ask him, good in the room, hard worker. Um, and so that's probably got me sort of my last two years in the league. I played a bit in Dallas and then um, and then went to Nashville. And Nashville was clearly not a good season, but I think that they recognized that they needed an older player, a couple older players, and somebody who had won and somebody who played on real good teams. And so, you know, I wouldn't say the Nashville experience was much of a success from my standpoint as a player, but um, it got me paid for another year, and it was a good experience to live in Nashville. My family liked it, and I really liked the, the guys on the team. So, But I knew I was done, and I just walked away quietly because I was like, I'm not productive. And I didn't try to get another contract, and I'm not saying I could have even got another contract. Yeah, Likely not, but it was like, I left everything here. I'm, I'm good. Right, right, right. You know, fair enough. I really think it's interesting what you said there, and 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 it. I mean, I don't know what it is, whether it's a philosophy or 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 not, but like that idea, just that underarching idea that the team, like if I can take care of the team, then I get taken care of, right? Instead of I need to take care of myself when the team's not going well or whatever, right? And I can you can see that. I mean, you can see that high-level business in different companies, like how that transpires. You can see that in the NHL in different cultures, right? Like how that yeah. transpires. And um, yeah, like how, like if you were to run a team or if you were to be a coach, like how do you try to instill that? Because there has to be truth to it, right? You have to be able to actually take care of your players. And I think, I mean, I'll just say where I, I mean, I saw that in Detroit. Like it seemed like guys were taken care of in Detroit. Like you, you were a team guy, then they would take care of you. And, and that, allowed like a third line right winger to take care of the fourth line right winger rookie that was coming in because they wanted him to be great instead of like pushing his head down you know trying to yeah. get him out of there you know at least that, yeah. that was the vibe that i felt like it's 100 percent the vibe yeah and i think you're, you're and that is 100 percent of the vibe in detroit it was 100 percent the vibe in montreal and i'm not saying on our teams it wasn't either but it was very very prevalent in montreal that everybody was pulling for you you were part of the team but um you know i just had a thought that you said, you know, when you're a coach or a GM, how do you do this? Well, it's it's one decision, it's one action at a time. And, you know, I, I, I think about the culture we had in Montreal. It's a hundred year culture. It's a 25 Stanley Cup culture. Like it's, you already have it. All you have to do there is not mess it up. You got to keep it. You got to keep your old players around. You got to keep your alumni around you got to remind people look at the rafters right and you got to treat them like that and in detroit it was similar i mean we um obviously they went through a tough spell after after you know a lot of cups in the 50s and they were a weak team in the 70s and, and, and in the 80s and then they built this and they got the culture back and how do you hang on to it and it's not easy like we all say well you got to have good culture well culture you just don't wake up one day and say hey we got a good culture now it's years of development, whether it's a business or a hockey team. It's one decision. It's one action at a time. 
And for these new teams, you know, or these teams that haven't been good, they have to continue to build on that. And, and that's why I said earlier, ownership's important because that's where it starts. And then the president and the manager and the, and, and the coaching staff and the training staff and the, you build it from inside and, it, and it, it, you can't do it part way. It's got to be every single decision. You can't take care of players that aren't good enough anymore. Right, like they, they've got to go, and I think the players totally understand that. But when you're a player that's helping, when you're a player that's doing all the right things, you get some more leeway to stay there. Because do you change a fourth line player out to somebody that's maybe he's going to be a little bit better, but we don't know his character, we don't know what what he's going to bring. So certainly, you 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 can um, extend your career, or you can, you know, for young players who are just trying to come up, or. Maybe they're never going to be NHL players, but they may make teams because of what they're bringing from a from a you know a character standpoint, from a discipline standpoint, from a you know being a great teammate and a great uh, and a great role model. Going to take one last break here from the podcast to announce that I am hiring. Uh, I will be hiring hopefully in the next month, maybe two, uh, but I need help. Uh, I need help in the admin department. I need help with uh, with onboarding clients. I need help with the creation of new courses. I need help with some simple accounting. Uh, as of right now, up my hockey has been all Jason Padolan. And for me to supply the best service and to serve my clients the best and to generate new products and new programs uh, and, and new ways to serve, I need to get out of my own way. And that means uh, bringing somebody on board. So kind of an inaugural event and and uh, and really a cool event. But uh, to be able to say that I am in a position to bring someone in uh, is exciting. It's also a bit scary, but uh, this will be the first official member uh, of the Up My Hockey team. And so it's not going to be a position that I'm going to take lightly. It might be a part-time position, potentially full-time. I'm trying to figure that out right now. Um, but I think for sure it'll be like a four-hour-a-day type thing. So if there's anyone out there listening that, uh, you know, would like to be a part of what Up My Hockey is, first and foremost, if you are somebody that's passionate about helping other players, other people, if you are passionate about what mindset can do and what personal development can do, and if you're gung-ho on hockey, you love hockey, you've been a part of it in some way, shape, or form, these are all bonus points. Uh, I'm all about people. I'm all about putting good people in right positions. And uh, you definitely need to be drinking the Kool-Aid of what the Up My Hockey philosophy is uh, for me to uh, want to work with you and for you to want to work with me because uh, I think we can accomplish great things with the right person there and, uh, and really being a people-first, people-centric person. Uh, there might be some opportunities to do some uh, chatting with inside the Facebook group as well. There could be a, a need for you to be a little bit social media savvy, at least with regards to uh, being able to make posts. And, um, and yeah, so I'm excited. So if you are out there, if you're listening, if you are looking for some extra income, if you want to be a part of a growing, uh, a growing business that is helping players become better and growing as people and growing as players and helping organizations and teams to take a step forward, then, uh, then this could be the perfect spot for you. Uh, I would love to meet you. I would love to chat about what it is you can provide and what it is I'm looking for. So there is my first official uh, shout out. If uh, if you are there, and if you hear me, and if this that rings true, and if you are interested, by all means send uh, 
send me a contact uh, email. Jason at upmyhockey.com is how you can reach me. There's also a contact form on the website at www.upmyhockey.com uh, where you can get in touch and, and let me know that this might be something you're interested in. And uh, we'll take it from there. So thank you very much for listening. And now we'll get back to the conversation with Brent Gilchrist. What... Uh, your very first year, we talked a little bit before the podcast even started. Like that was, you're in the NHL, you're playing for the Canadians. Uh, there, you know, there are a few years removed from a cup at that point, but then you get to the finals again. Like what? And it looks like you played nine games that uh, that playoff season. Like that must have been an yeah. absolute whirlwind for you. What What was that like? Yeah, it was fantastic. So I came, like I said, I came up with eleven or twelve games into the season, and I had a good year. Like I think I played. 48 or 49 games and I had 24 points so I had a pretty good offensive year really for a rookie who was in and out of the lineup had a really good first round against Hartford because Bob Ganey was hurt and um, and then halfway through the Boston series Bob came back I was playing really well actually I was really happy with what I was playing I think they were too I certainly wasn't going to take Bob Ganey's spot or captain so he came back in the lineup and I played sparingly after that and got into actually two games in the finals. Um, I'll just add that the only two games in the finals we won, I was playing. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, we lost in four, but I played game, uh, I played game two and three and we won. So it was an incredible experience. And so that was a, that was one of those you know, situations where it was so disappointing to lose the cup, but yet you're kind of pinching yourself where you are. My first year in the league, we go to the finals. Um, you know, I hear people say, man, I'd hate to go to the finals and lose. I said, well, I hate not going to the finals. <laughs> I choose all day going to the finals and not get knocked out in the first round. But yeah, it was, a, it was an incredible season and, um, you know, to lose was super, super disappointing. We got to tell you at the same time, um, wow, here I am. And we'll be in, you know, my thought process, we were a great team. We we're going to be, we'll win it next year. We'll be in the finals next year. Well, it took me 10 years to get back there. It's interesting in Philadelphia, we beat uh, Flyers in the Spectrum in game six. And on the bus out of Philly, I, Bob Caney sat down with me. We cracked a beer and, uh, he said, you know, we got a real kick at the can now. And he says, just remember when you're here, you got to win it because you never know when you're going to be back. And I'm thinking like, yeah, Bob, like you're 36 or 37. I, I get that for you, but I'm going to be here. I'm thinking to myself, I'm, I'm on the Montreal Canadiens. I'm going to be here lots. Yeah, no, didn't get back for 10 years. That is crazy. I, mean, I was going to say, I mean, that's uh... – you mean some guys never get there, right? I mean, it's a hard thing to do. What one, right? Of course, and and then uh, and then you can t totally take it for granted. What what was there any? That was a probably an amazing perspective. I mean, to be whatever thirty, I guess ish, right? When you when you went with Detroit, and now you're back there with this great team, back to the final. Like that must have been an entirely new perspective, an entirely new appreciation for what was going on. I felt like I was on a bit of a mission. I know the team was. Um, you know, the only real change they made uh, after winning in 97 was I, I came in and Thomas Sandstrom had left. Um, 
then I was out with my roommate, actually, my ex-roommate, Bobby Rouse, who lives in Langley. We went to the Detroit game uh, on Monday night together. And I said, do you remember what? He was my roommate that first year in Detroit. Yeah. And I said, you remember what you said to me? He goes, what did I say? He goes, I said, in about mid-October, you said to me one night, you said, uh, we really only made one change from last year. So if we don't win the cup, man, it's your fault. <laughs> it was just great, right? But, I, you know, I felt like I was on a total mission that year. Uh, the team was obviously with the accident to be with Vladimir Konstantinov. Um, and it was a team that was focused. We had a we had a decent regular season. We did what we had to do. Sergey had sat out till February. They signed him from an offer sheet from Carolina. And um, we were just tough to beat. I mean, we were tough to beat, but we had our hands full of Dallas, which was Another wrinkle for me, I leave the Stars to sign with the Red Wings as a free agent. Who do we meet in the conference finals? And really, who are the best teams in the league? Those two. So that would have been a terrible pill to swallow. Um, great series, and we ended up beating them. I, uh, you know, they won the next year. So, you know, flip a coin who, who was, who was going to win that series. So, you know, I really felt like I was on a mission to get there. Um, Incredible feeling. Yeah, the uh, who'd you have in the final series? Was it Pittsburgh? It was Washington. Being oh, Washington. Before, but I um, that's you know that's where I changed my career because I was playing hurt and um, by the game six we, we we beat Dallas in game six. I was done. I couldn't step on this the last ten minutes, so I was finished for the for the playoffs. So uh, that was disappointing, but. Um, you know, it is what it is. You do you do what you have to do, and uh, it, it certainly it certainly changed my career. But um, I've never once regretted it. Well, yeah, and I saw. Um, maybe you can speak a little bit more on that because I saw a clip, and I'm not sure if they played it at the if where they played it. It was at the Vernon Carnival tournament. They put it together or not? But I think it was Brandon Shanahan talking about you that series, uh, that that run. And then saying, you know, like the pain that you were going through, that they could actually hear you, you know, screaming in another room, um, trying to, trying to be able to play. Like, what, what was, what was the pain, and what were you going through, and what were you doing to, to get on the ice? Well, I, twenty games from the season, I went, I was, you know, having a good year, and uh, but my, I really had a bad drawing, and uh, I went in to tell Scotty that I, I think I need a week or two off, and he says I agree. Playoffs are. 18, 20 games away. So um, just never got better, got worse as I sat out. And um, it was a, it was, you know, a torn rectus of knobs. It was an athletic uh, hernia, athletic uh, sports hernia, or athletic pubology, whatever they call it now. And um, it wasn't going to go away. So I ended up um, starting cortisone shots right before the, the, the playoffs started. And, um, and I, it, it allowed me to get back in. I missed the first two games against Phoenix, and it, at home. And when we were in Phoenix, I hadn't skated for probably six weeks, and I had two more shots, and I felt good. So Scotty said, "Go out for warm up." So I went out for warm up in Phoenix, and um, he was standing at the door when I came in. And he said, how did it feel? I said, it, it felt great, Scotty. It felt awesome. I had no idea he was setting me up. I had no idea. I said, it was, I, I can't believe it, the pain's gone. He goes, I want you to play. And I'm like, I haven't skated in six weeks. Came three in the first round. 
and he goes, you won't play much, don't worry. Uh, you know, we got sitting and, and the, the spots you're taking, he told me the players, they're not going to play. So I'm like, fuck. So here I am, sharpen my skates. Let's, you know, let's get some sticks ready. And I played 12 and a half minutes. Wow. And we won. And I, and I actually had some good chances to score. It was just like one of those things. So um, I finished that series. I scored a big goal in game six. We were down, we were down two games to one. Um, no, we lost that game. That's right. We lost the first game I played. We were down two games. Well, there was a lot of pressure on us, right? Phoenix Stanley Cup champions. Phoenix had a real good team. They had a really good team. And the building in the America West building was crazy. So we we ended up gathering ourselves and winning, winning the next four, or winning the next three and, uh, and eliminating them. And then we played St. Louis, and I played the St. Louis series, and I tweaked it again in, like, game five and uh, decided not to play game six in case there was a game seven. I played game seven and didn't play game six. We won. And then I played the whole Dallas series um, with uh, injections every period. Every so, period. Yeah. And where are those injections going? Like directly into the groin? Groin and lower abdominals. And uh, they pinpoint them and Anyway, it's, it's, it was well documented at the time. Stevie actually talked about it at our pep rally when we won the cup. But uh, I don't know, like, uh, the mentality you're at but at the time, you don't really think about it that much. And, uh, and by, by game six against Dallas, I had taken a stride, and I didn't feel anything anymore. It was, it was gone. So when they did the, the ultrasound after the game, they said, no, no not a chance. Like, it was, so, like you tore it right off or yeah. whatever happened. Yeah. yeah, so that's crazy. Yeah. What was it? Was there any pressure from the wife, or is is that? Is it, did it matter if there was any? Like, how how was that as far as like the choice, the decision? I don't know. Like, we weren't making decisions. Like, we were just doing. You know, and she knew I was in a lot of pain, and uh, but I don't. We we weren't we weren't rationalizing anything, and and I would say this to you that the Red Wings treated me so well. And I don't think they ever forgot. So even when, you know, my last year or so in, uh, in Detroit, they were behind me. And I know where it came from, really. Yeah. That's pretty special. I mean, that's crazy. Um, yeah, hard to do. Good on you. I mean, and, and it is something that's kind of a part of your legacy now, I guess, uh, you know, with them and, and what you're – what, what you're willing to do to win. I mean, that's one of those things that people always talk about, right? Like, how committed are you to the to the end result? And sometimes it takes somebody like like a Brent Gilchrist to, to do that. And obviously, I'm sure it made everyone else stand a little harder and forget about their aches and pains a little bit too along the way. I think so. And for me, I don't think I make as big a deal about it. I don't talk about it a lot. I think my teammates made a much bigger deal about it. Right. Yeah, and probably point taken, right? Because yeah, you're the one in it, right? And it, you know, you yeah, like I said, I, we weren't we weren't making any decisions. I wasn't right. thinking about well, maybe we should do what we were just doing. Yeah. And um, but yeah, my teammates they still talk, in November when we got together they they talked about it. Yeah. That's it's special for me, but I I think it was less. I mean, I think it helped them. I I agree, um, but. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I don't even think about it that much anymore. Right. 
Um, we've, we're wrapping up over, uh, we're over an hour. And I, I, you've mentioned already sitting there and talking with the, with the U13 players at this, at the Vernon Carnival tournament, 50 year anniversary of it. And to have you come back and speak, um, first of all, I mean, thank you for doing that. Uh, I know it's something you didn't have to do. Uh, but if there's a message, I mean, I, I heard a lot of great things about your, about your talk, but on my platform here, it is, you know, it, it's hockey families and it's, and it's, uh, you know, young junior age players who, who want to get somewhere or want to be, you know, the NHL or and, and lift a cup over their head. Any, any advice for them in the, in the last little few minutes here at the podcast? Well, I, I think the biggest thing is advice for the kids is if you've got a dream, that's it. You've got to pursue it. You've got to do everything you can to achieve that dream and don't let anybody tell you. Don't let anybody tell you you're too small or too slow or not good enough or you're a girl and not a boy or whatever it is. I think that's key. You know, there's no secret, as you know, Jason, you went through it. There's no secret how we, we got there. Um, and to the parents, you're not going to make your son or daughter a professional hockey player. You, you, you can love them, you can support them, and they'll need that. But their path is going to be their own. It'll be blazed by themselves. And lots of people are there to help them, and parents are there to help them. But at the end of the day, it's going to be the player that does it. And for the players, um, you know, that I think that's it. You've got a dream. That's the best thing in the world. There's nothing better than the dream. Achieving is pretty fantastic, but I think the dream is just as important as the achievement. Yeah, just don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. Period. I love it. Yeah, no, that's great. Great way to end. I really appreciate your time and sharing your story with us. Uh, it's been a long time coming, but I'm glad we finally able to do it. And uh, yeah, enjoy it. Yeah, thanks, Jake. I enjoyed it. All right, fantastic stuff there from from Brent. Uh, so thankful that he was able to come on. And uh, you know, the fact if you stuck around to the end, I hope you did, and you heard those stories about him and his his groin and the hernia and actually playing to a point that his groin detached from his body, getting cortisone shots in between periods, two of them, every period to be able to play to a point where his teammates would hear him screaming, taking the needles just for a band of brothers to win a championship. Like it's amazing. It's amazing what the power of that can do where it becomes bigger than you. You mean there's no way Brent would does that if it's an individual type sport thing. I, I know there isn't. Uh, it just wouldn't happen. But when you have 20 other guys in that locker room that you know need you and that you know that you want to be there for, that you want to be able to help them, like you end up doing these super crazy, superhuman almost like things. And, and, uh, and to Brent's point, you know, every time he gets together with his teammates, it's not something that he really re wants to talk about, but they do. You know, I mean, like the impression that that left on them uh, is something that they talk about now, you know, 20, 20 years later. And, and what an impact that must have had in the moment, you know, for those guys, for the Brandon Shanahan's and the Steve Eisermans and the Lidstrom's and, and, and all the Drapers and everyone else that was on that team, you know, that everyone in a hockey playoff series has aches and pains and they have bumps and bruises and they have stuff that they're going through and they're trying to fight through. And when you see a guy that's going to that extent to put his jersey on, it makes you stand a little taller and it makes your own issue feel a little less relevant. And, uh, and I'm sure he was a major, major component in why that team was successful on that run that year. And uh, yeah, really fantastic stuff. And I think that 
you know, it, it stems from him talking about his his upbringing with with the Canadians, and and if you heard him say again and again and again, you know what what that organization meant to him and what it taught him, and uh, and those lessons that it taught him allowed him to be a better human and a better player and a better teammate for the rest of his career, and it's even translated into his business life. You know, like those lessons matter, and so for you, anyone out there playing hockey right now or any any team sport for that matter. Do not forget that it is a team sport. Like there is so many lessons to be learned just by being on a team and how you choose to show up in that environment, right? Like how do you show up? Is it about you? Is it about you? And be honest with that. Is it about what you do in that game, about the goals and assists that you get or the ice time that you get or how you get to do what you want to do? Or is it about the collective? Are you able to shift maybe your focus a little bit away from yourself and try and think about the value you can add to others around you? And also, what can the group provide you if you give something to the group? Uh, we need to look outside ourselves, and, and, and hockey has a way of being able to do that, but we also have to be a willing participant as a player. So uh, any of you individuals out there who are playing, who who kind of have a me first mentality like I this conversation is so so beneficial uh, to hear the value of team and to hear the value of putting your teammates first or the winning like the idea of winning first and to be a utilitarian player as as uh, Gilly said it you know like that he was able to to be fit into different scenarios it, it made him it made him valuable you know it made him it made him have a longer tenure and and if you're a player that's really stuck in their ways about who you're supposed to be and what you are and you only have fun playing the game a certain way that limits you right and that makes you potentially not much of a team guy so be being the utility player that gilly said and also being a guy that that wants to be there for his for his teammates and that's going to build trust with 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 his teammates and with the coaching staff you know this is this is all great stuff and i think that's one of the values of of the up my hockey podcast is that we get to highlight some of these things and and uh and talk and talk about them and, and and show the value there because sometimes it's not the things that get recognized on the tsn highlight reels and the and the plays of the week and and uh you know it's not it's not the stat line sometimes at the end of the day but it's it's the players like brent gilchrist that help everyone be better and help teams be successful whether that be in business or on the or on the ice or in whatever arena that you are that you are playing in so i think that's a great way to end this one um you know team first be a team player be a good human and uh and you will get taken care of uh, you just got to find your your people so till next time play hard and keep your head up.